Hello, I'm Liam Bailey. I'm head of research at Knight Frank. I'm delighted to welcome you to a special edition podcast marking the launch of The Wealth Report, Knight Frank's annual deep dive into private capital and real estate. Now, one of the big stories to emerge in this year's report is mobility. So the desire for wealthy individuals to relocate to new countries or to acquire the paperwork needed to allow this mobility in the future. And to guide us through the latest themes, I'm joined by Kristin Surak, Associate Professor at the London School of Economics. Kristin is also the author of The Golden Passport, a book on this subject, the definitive book on this subject, coming out in August. Welcome to you, Kristin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just to start, can you define our terms of reference? What are we referring to when we discuss global mobility programs? When people are interested in acquiring global mobility, it's basically two main concerns that they have. One would be mobility in the present in terms of having easier cross-border experiences, visa-free access to different parts of the world that they wouldn't normally have, depending on their country of citizenship. But it's also mobility in terms of the future. Where would it be possible to go, given so many uncertainties and potential risks in the world, in a sense, keeping the doors open? More recently, COVID-19 has um, accentuated that as well. And in terms of how the landscape has changed, we've had these programs for some time, a number of decades. They grew particularly after the global financial crisis. Uh, What was the driver of that process? Well, for countries starting these programs, if we think about, um, you can break them up into both citizenship by investment and residence by investment, or golden passports and golden visas. In both cases, it's very often economic difficulties that drive countries to look at this as, as a potential option to bring in what is, in effect, foreign direct investment. So the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 saw, within a couple of years, the effect wasn't immediate, but by about 2013, there began an increasing spread in both citizenship by investment and residence by investment programs in a number of places. The European Union is is a very prominent case where now about half the countries in the EU have had these sorts of programs, but with changing future trajectories for them as well. But in in looking at citizenship programs, too, they've expanded across the Caribbean into places. Now, Turkey is a major player in the global market. There have been a lot of transformations in the past 10 years coming out of those economic crises of the early 2010s. And just from this podcast's area of interest, uh, real estate was a big driver of that expansion after the global financial crisis. That's very much the case. If you look at, um, for example, Cyprus, where the real estate scene after 2008, 2009, after the euro crisis, especially 2013 came the infamous haircut as well. Um, The real estate sector was hurting very, very much. And the few economic studies that have come out on this, led by, for example, the big four accountancies, have shown that the program is very important for making the construction sector, which is you know about 18% of the economy in Cyprus, really pulling that together again, simply because developers couldn't get loans. It became so, you know, they were over leveraged, but then banks wouldn't uh, lend to them so that they continue projects. So it really, in that sense, it really bailed it out. If you look at the residence by investment programs too, real estate is hugely popular. If people have an option, whether it's, you know, invest in business or create jobs or donate to a charity, in about 90 to 95% of all cases, they'll go for real estate as well. And when we spoke for the Wealth Report a few weeks ago, you noted a a change in focus. So 
if I summarise, I guess less real estate, less passive, more active schemes. What's happening there? Since the beginning of the year, there's been a real change in terms of the golden visa schemes, residence by investment schemes, especially in the European Union. So Ireland has announced that it's closing its program. Portugal is now moving in that direction too. Greece has increased its minimum investment amount. Spain is considering taking away the the real estate component as well. So there's been quite a sea change within the EU since the beginning of the year. And I think part of that is a move against this idea of simply pay to play, that these are passive investments. You're not, in a sense, contributing to the the country any more than, say, putting your money into it in an investment. But what countries are, are reconfiguring are shifts now into encouraging innovation, entrepreneurial programs. So Portugal is now expanding its innovation streams while it's perhaps closing down its golden visa scheme. So the driver for this is, I'm assuming it's economic, it's trying to broaden the breadth of the economy. Is that the, is that the, the driver for this? Well, these programs are very political as well, because of that notion of people just putting their money in and bringing nothing else to the country. So when governments try to regulate there's often more, I think, signaling than serious economic evaluations of what's going on and what would change and how to direct the money in a way that's most productive for, for an economy. So at the moment, in terms of this recent wave of shifts across Europe, I think that's more the result of politics and actual solid economic evaluations of what these programs are doing to an economy and how they might be reconfigured to bring things in. But in general, the idea that we are a country is attracting innovators, um, entrepreneurs, etc., simply sounds better to most people involved rather than we're just getting rich people who put their money in. So we may see a shift to more, quote unquote, active investment streams where you have to have a demonstrate a history of having started businesses or have, being involved in the running the business or generating a certain amount of local employment rather than simply, you know, buying a house or buying a, a suite of apartments that you then just simply rent out afterwards. The UK has gone through some changes. The tier one scheme has disappeared. Just explain what happened and and, and what was the driver for the UK's change of heart. The tier one investor stream is actually quite old. So it went back to 1994. And it was never a very big channel. I think right before, for many, many years, it was simply an investment of um, one million pounds was sufficient. And then when they increased it to two million, there was a big jump in in interest rate before that. But most years, it was only, it was less than a thousand applications that were coming through the stream. So it was a very small number. And it was one of those immigration channels or visa channels that was simply put in place and then kind of forgotten about. However, there were issues in terms of um, background checks for many years. The UK began to become a bit more strict about that, looking at um, who the individuals were, the source of wealth. But even then, you know, there wasn't much of a program. But, and I think in the case of, of shutting it down, it was simply that the political will wasn't there to sustain it in the face of quite a lot of controversy in terms of, um, for example, Russian oligarchs um, getting residents in the UK through these programs. Currently, now there's um, discussion of what to do about maintaining visa-free access to countries that sell, you know, particularly Caribbean countries that sell 
citizenship and whether the UK wants to maintain that too. In many of these cases, I think oftentimes, because the issue is so highly politicized, it's not necessarily thoroughly investigated in the first place whether that makes political sense or not. So, for example, the UK can still deny a visa to or deny entry to anybody. They still have that final check at the border. So having just simply visa-free access is not enough. And the UK is also rolling out an electronic system very much similar to the way that the US screens. Even if you have visa-free access to the US, you still have to apply for entry in the first place. And so um, that sort of system is being rolled out in the UK In a sense, I think the precautions that are being put in place make less sense than is often said. It's in a way it makes for a good headline to look like one is being tough. You mentioned earlier the um, I think European schemes and Caribbean schemes are probably the most high profile and uh, the ones which are talked about in the media. But you mentioned Turkey. Are, Are there other locations where actually there's been big growth in these schemes? Yeah. In fact, if you look globally, I think the real story really is schemes in the global south. So the country that approves the most citizenship by investment applications is actually Turkey and is about half the global market. And they've increased their minimum investment amount recently from 200,000 US dollars to 500,000 US dollars. But if you can imagine buying a nice house in Istanbul or a resort area for 500,000 and getting Turkish citizenship, it's much more convenient than having Syrian citizenship or Jordanian citizenship or if you're Palestinian or even Chinese citizenship in terms of some of the travel possibilities or even investment possibilities in Europe as well, because Turkish citizens also get some tax breaks in terms of um, importing things into Europe, et cetera. So there can be a number of advantages. And in Turkey, yeah, it's it's come to dominate the market, much more so than the Caribbean programs or Malta at the moment. Even looking at residence by investment, the program that was the most popular in the world right before COVID was actually in Malaysia. It wasn't in, in Europe. And in fact, the European residence by investment programs were still, all of them put together, were still less than half the global market. The U.S. would be much, much higher if it didn't have a cap on its numbers, which is one of the reasons why Malaysia is still quite popular. But there's, you know, South Korea has a program, Panama has a program, the UAE has developed a program as well. And so I think in terms of media coverage of a lot of these things, there's been so much focus on the global north that interest in investing in global south cities and tapping into um, developments in real estate markets there, especially as well as travel possibilities, is often forgotten. Let's just um, think of a different angle on this story. So less the citizenship schemes, but more the requirement for workers or the demand for workers to move to different locations. And we've noted in the last couple of years in the Wealth Report, the concept of the digital nomads, so the idea workers untethered from their desks can, can work anywhere. Why not work somewhere nice and warm rather than in Northern Europe? When we were speaking for the Wealth Report, it was quite clear from what you were saying that this has been a big growth area and actually has got further to grow. I'm interested because actually this is a big area, a big impact potentially on property markets. So in terms of the destination countries, there's a big impact potentially on residential rental markets, particularly for sort of shorter term schemes, and also even for office markets. And actually flexible office markets is booming in some of those destination locations. What's your take on the growth of that mobility of workers? Yeah, that is a very interesting development. In effect, there's two sides to it. One is 
first, there has to be the, the possibility to go and stay in a place for often, say, more than 90 days as you would get on a tourist visa. So it is important to have that side of countries courting people and making a place amenable to a person doing digital nomad style work. So just in terms of getting the right papers to be able to spend a slightly longer amount of time in a place. But then the other side of that, as you, as you rightly point out, is the real estate side. Airbnb style short-term rentals, workspaces that are functional as well as good internet access, et cetera. There has to be something of a particular type of infrastructure that works for this. And that's where in some cases, um, the impact on local rental markets can be challenging. And there, I think, in terms of local reception, it really depends on what percentage of people living locally or who are nationals in the country, people living there permanently, what percentage are homeowners, what percentage are renters, and the, the complexities that emerge out of that. There's probably about 50 countries now that have digital nomad visas that are quite interested in courting this population that effectively comes in. They've got good salaries. They spend it in a lot of daily consumption activities as well, and bring sometimes quite a lot of energy to a place too. So it'll be interesting to see where the most popular destinations emerge, whether it's big cities, whether it's more coastal areas that are gorgeous, and what sort of infrastructures are, are really necessary to develop a, a solid digital nomad population, even if it's one that fluctuates in and out. One location which springs to mind, and it's talked about a lot, is Dubai. Is Dubai winning in this competition for talent and wealth? That is a very interesting question. I remember right around COVID, there were a number of Americans who began looking at Dubai as an option because it seemed much safer in terms of um, how they were handling the global pandemic and uh, in terms of the different legal structures that they have there. And depending on how one thinks of very, very warm weather, um, that can be a real draw as well. But Dubai is quite interesting as a destination, and they're still trying to do a lot to attract those sorts of populations. And now that it's become possible to have a golden visa in Dubai, before you could never retire, you had to be an employee, you had to have a work visa. And now the Emirates is moving out of that as well. That could be a real growth zone, um, especially as Hong Kong shuts down. Just taking the long view, is it safe to say that we've got a more mobile future? More countries will want to compete harder to attract talent and wealth over time? I think so. It'll be interesting to see how that mobility is constructed. But I think the, the rash of borders that we saw suddenly thrown up around the COVID-19 pandemic, that has taught a lot of places about um, what is the impact on the economies if you do try to close off in that way. What we also see are, an incre I mean, the EU is very famous for this, for having free mobility within the region, but there's actually a number of regional alliances that allow free mobility of workers. Most of them do, in fact. The GCC allows free mobility for its nationals. Mercosur in South America does. ECOWAS in West Africa. ASEAN has talked about this as well. So we might see more intra-regional mobility coming up. Kristin, thank you very much for that. Before we finish, just tell our listeners about your, your book and the date for launch. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, it's the uh, Golden Passport, Global Mobility for Millionaires. It's coming out with Harvard University Press, but in, in wide release, and it should be out on the shelves in August or September this year. I just saw the cover. And so it now has a face and a name. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what people think about it. it was, I traveled to 16 countries and talked to about 500 people in, in covering the topic. So um, hopefully if anybody has any questions about uh, the market and citizenship by investment, uh, hopefully they can find an answer in there. 
Kristin, thank you so much. Very kind of you to join me today and share your thoughts. Well, thank you for having me. And it just leaves me to remind you all that for more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note that goes out each Monday, Wednesday and Friday, or any one of our dedicated sector-focused newsletters. See our show notes for more details. And please subscribe to Intelligence Talks wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for listening to this episode. <laughs>